Welcome everyone to Goddard in the World podcast. I am your host, Amanda Faye Laxon, and I am here with my co-host, Sam Rebeline. Hey, Sam. Hey, Amanda. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. How are you on this lovely Friday morning for us? Friday, October, October morning. Um, there's a chill in the air. Uh, mm-hmm. It's crazy (laughs) how that is like it just kind of like switched from summer to fall like very quickly i know i'm not mad about uh, it how are you like you're you're in like beautiful upstate fall new york how is it over there it's so nice i'm really happy to be here uh this year last year i was in texas for the fall and i was very homesick so i've been trying to live up as much as possible uh, it's been really nice, and we've had some spooky things happening here. We had a pack of coyotes Ooh. like right outside our <gasps> neighborhood. Um, and oh, then sure. <laughs> like real spooky got- things. I thought just like events. <laughs> like, okay, coyotes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, just you know, like the chill in the air, and there's it's windy. There's leaves blowing, and you just hear like a pack of coyotes out in the distance. Although, <gasps> fun fact, because we looked it up, because we were like, it sounds like there's a million of them, and apparently, that's a common misconception that people will always overestimate the number of coyotes that they hear. Which is like studies wow. that have been done. If you hear two coyotes yipping and howling, people will often overestimate the number of coyotes they hear by twofold, according to um, whatever website my mom was reading last night. (laughs) (laughs) That's so So, interesting. Yeah, isn't that kind of a fun fact? Um, I wonder if it's, uh, I wonder if that's like part of the coyote, like, Think like maybe they sound like more, you know, as part of their like, uh, survival, like, yeah, I guess so, because they're supposed to be, like, defending their territory. So if you sound right. like you're really big and um, have a lot of members in your pack or whatever, like, people, mm-hmm. pe- people like, other coyotes, <laughs> the sure. other coyote peoples will avoid your territory <laughs> yeah. uh, more. I don't know. Or other enemies. <laughs> yes, of course. Other predators uh, and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's so interesting but anyway okay that's that's my little spooky so how many did you hear oh a million, <laughs> you <heard> one million. <laughs> so it's only like I half mean, a million <laughs> yeah so it was probably like three um oh, but, uh, that's amazing <laughs> but Aww. who knows yeah so that's cool. anyway yeah do you have so we're we're recording this before halloween um but do you have mm-hmm. any specific halloween plans um no i am going to a haunted house this weekend with an old friend um there's an orchard by us that has a screening of hocus pocus next weekend um and uh it's like they say new england's number one winifred sanderson uh lookalike is gonna be there I'm like, I wonder oh. what the number two Winifred Sanderson. Like, <laughs> like how do you, how, uh, who figures Boston. that out? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she couldn't make it. Um, <laughs> so that's some, you know, fun, spooky uh, events. Uh, what about you? Do yeah. you have anything fun coming up this week? Um, well, this uh, coming up this week, it's it's my birthday. Um, so oh my god, that's yeah. right! <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so, um, 
the plan right now is um, my husband is taking our baby and watching him. <laughs> he is sending me and my cousin to a spa. Um, so oh. um, it's a spa on Governor's Island. Like it's it wow. like opened fairly recently, but um, I've heard very good things from a friend. And um, yeah, you just kind of like go and like wander into like the different rooms. <laughs> like, like wow. it's, you know, like a cold room, a hot <laughs> room, like, I don't know. And, baths and pools and things and ointments sure yeah all of that fun stuff so um yeah so it's like a day day spa and so my cousin and i are like gonna be enjoying that and then it is my son's nine month birthday like a couple days ago um and so he has a his doctor's appointment on Monday. Um, so we're going to get to see how much he's grown since his six month appointment, uh, which is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, it feels like a, a <laughs> ton. I'm like, I, I'm like, why do we space the, these so far? Up? Like, it feels like so far apart um, because he's just like grown so much since six months. Like he's like pulling himself up. He's like, uh, wow. cruising like trying trying to walk um by holding Spitting. on to stuff yeah and so um he's like a different baby <laughs> so it's like wild <laughs> um wow. but yeah Crazy. and then oh this weekend um is the Tompkins square halloween dog parade um and oh so my God. we don't have a dog but uh we've gone like a couple of times and it is just so freaking cute like because yeah, all the I dogs bet. are dressed up all the people are dressed up and like we have a little skeleton costume for rafa and so Aww. we'll put him in that <laughs> and then awesome go see the dogs all dressed up i'll probably bring my camera and you know, take pictures, but yeah, like, I mean, it, it, I don't know what it's going to be like this year. Um, but the first year we went, I think, I don't know if we like, I, I think we went intentionally. I don't think we stumbled upon it, but, um, uh, my husband Curtis was like, this is the best day <laughs> because it's just like <laughs> all these super cute dogs and like awesome costumes. Cause like you're in yeah. the East village and like, you know, it's usually still like beautiful out and like mm-hmm. yeah they're it's very cute um oh that's so fun yeah, well i hope so, it's a great time yeah and rafa's too little to have candy so um he's not gonna have any candy but. so i guess you're just gonna have to eat it for him um, yeah that's know, true that's true if people team. give us candy for the baby <laughs> We'll eat it. We will take candy from the baby. (laughs) (laughs) You should not have candy. (laughs) Worst parents ever. But yeah. Yeah. So, okay. (laughs) So that was super fun um, to hear about all of our, you know, spooky plans. Like it's it's a big it's a big month for like a horror writer. (laughs) So so I just wanted to make sure we had all of that covered. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no i thank you it's been a good spooky month so far okay. and i think it's only gonna get spookier so that's awesome it i i have heard the phrase it's spooky season like way more than usual <laughs> and i'm just yeah, like yeah that ah, does seem to be a major a like hashtag this year yeah yeah so our guest today is Megan Guidry. Uh, she is a fantastic 
um, writer and researcher. And I mean, you're going to hear all about her uh, when when we start the interview. But um, she she did all of this um, work on mythology and uh, grief. And I have a lot to talk to her about that, um, which mm. is... <laughs> It's weird to say that it's like super fun, but it is like. Well, it's so interesting. I mean, you know, uh, I think you both have a lot of really fascinating things to say about. I mean, some of the myths that some of the myths that she talks about are ones that I had never heard of before, and Mm -hmm, so I feel like I learned a lot. I I think mythology is really interesting, and so hearing new bits of it is always a a good time, even if you're talking about grief and dying. Yeah. um, yeah, all the other dark subjects that we covered in this episode, but definitely I think people will have a good time with. Yeah, yeah, it's super fascinating. Um, like what she has done with her grief, <laughs> like what she has turned her grief mm-hmm. into, um, writing wise and like kind of art wise. Um, and on that note, one of the things that she is promoting in this episode is her upcoming book called kinesiophobia and uh while when we recorded this we thought it was already going to be published um but they've run into a couple of delays and so it has not yet been published but it will be available for pre-order and she is offering uh people who pre-order directly from the press a free one-year subscription to no new mythology which you'll hear hear about in the podcast. We will put all of those links in the show notes um, and, you know, click on them, order, and <laughs> all of that good stuff. <laughs> so, all that good stuff. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah. I mean, what do you want to say about Megan to like help prepare our listeners for this episode? I felt like uh, talking to her, she knew things about me that I didn't know, and I don't oh. know what those things are, but uh, I just felt like she was a very powerful presence in, in a good way. Mm. Um, mm. Just very, like, I don't know. I, I can tell that she has uh, a depth to her that I feel very comforted by and am always intrigued by. I mean, uh, just having a conversation with her uh, felt like she was really listening to everything that I had to say and like mm-hmm. always had something interesting to respond to. I mean, I don't know. She just was a very engaging person mm-hmm. in all sorts of ways. So I don't know if that's a whole coherent thought, but I just had a no, really good No, that's great. <laughs> that's um, awesome. Makes- yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I definitely felt connected with her on like many levels um, from what we studied. But like also, yeah, she she's an amazing person to like talk with. Um, you can you'll be able to tell by this supersized episode. We've we've released <laughs> two supersized episodes um, so far. Don't expect that in the future. Um, yeah. Just, calm down not because our guests. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is just like bonus. <laughs> But not because our guests aren't interesting, but just in general, we try to keep it to one hour. But yeah, we went over for for Megan and Christy from the last from last month. But um, <laughs> I yeah, thank you to Christy also for introducing us to Megan. Um, yes, oh my gosh, they were thank in the you. same cohort. So 
Everyone sit back, relax, enjoy uh, our interview with Megan Gidry. And happy spooky season. Welcome everyone to Goddard in the World podcast. I'm especially excited today to both meet and have as a guest, Megan Guidry. Author Megan Guidry works across genres, fusing poetry, memoir, and magical realism to highlight emotional truths and inner landscapes. Central to her work is the exploration of grief, how it manifests in memory, ritual, and the mythology we use to live alongside loss. Megan's newest book, Kinesiophobia, is out now from Thera Books. Her work has appeared in the Harvard Divinity Bulletin, Applied Sentience, and The Gray Alley. She also collaborates with composers on choral lyrics and libretto for new operas. Megan is the creator of No New Mythology, a monthly literary series that explores trauma, grief, and healing through the lens of classical mythology. Megan lives near Boston with her cat, Sam. When she's not writing, you can find her swimming, playing RPGs, and on a quest to find the best chocolates in the world. Learn more, stay in touch, and send chocolate rex. (laughs) (laughs) Megan, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's so nice to meet you, too. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh, we're so oh excited gosh. to have you. Thank you for you. coming. Yeah. Um, you were recommended to us uh, by uh, Kristen Schoonover. And uh, when she told us a little bit about your work, I was so excited <laughs> because I felt really connected with a lot of what you've done. Um, at the top of your bio... You said like regarding working with grief, memory, ritual, and mythology. Um, I have like a lot of connections around that. We can talk about that in a bit. But um, is there an early experience you had with grief and what story or stories, uh, mythologies, helped you deal with that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I'm excited to get into some of those parallels uh, we share in our work too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I would say, I guess an early, an early instance with grief, which at the time I didn't recognize was grief, um, was that when I was very young, so maybe about seven, um, my mother began um, showing signs of having some, um, you know, what's potentially a mental illness that really ripped her out of reality. Um, And Mm -hmm. so, and she was also my primary caregiver. My parents were divorced. She Mm -hmm. had sort of the majority of physical custody. So most of my time was spent with her in our home. And yet as she kind of drifted further and further away from reality, I found myself really reeling, um, A, by trying to sort of understand her worldview um, mm. and under, as a way to just kind of keep us together and maintain some kind of connection. But also, I, you know, looking back, I realized now like, oh, I, I was grieving. Like I was grieving hmm. the loss of this central figure in my life who, you know, really in a matter of months had completely, you know, 
personality, um, you know, focuses, um, everything about her really completely changed. And so I think, you know, that again, I didn't recognize that, that it was grief at the time, but in hindsight, I can really understand and see the ways that I was grieving and trying to navigate that grief, um, as a child Mm -hmm. without any of the tools or any of the language. Right. It's funny. It makes me think when we were talking to Christy, um, something we were talking about that I thought was really interesting is that it's trauma comes not so much from the event itself, but sort of the realization of the event later mm-hmm. when someone sort of points out to you that you were going through something that requires grief or requires yeah. sort of grappling with it. So that's really resonates with me hearing you talk about grieving without realizing you're grieving. Mm, Yeah. Thank Um, you for that. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes, you know, even now, like it's, it's my life story. It feels not always good, but natural to me. And I'll, you know, casually explain something to the effect of, oh yeah, my mom um, obsessively read tarot cards for hours and hours every day because mm -hmm. she thought that's how she was communicating with kind of a a plethora of divine beings and then would make life decisions based on that. And Mm -hmm. the looks I get sometimes are enough to confirm, right, that was, that's not a common experience. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And and you were so young. uh, I mean, seven years old, like I wouldn't have the language or tools to be dealing with that. I I mean, I can understand why, you know, the naming it as grief only came later in like retrospectively. So when I was studying at Goddard, I was, I was reading fairy tales, but a lot of the psychology of fairy tales Mm -hmm. and Mm. um, how, you know, uses of enchantment and uh, all of that, um, and how those stories can help us anchor, anchor our grief, anchor our fears, uh, especially when you're a child. So were there, were there some stories or how, how did you anchor yourself in that experience? That's a great question. Um, and I completely agree. I am a, similarly a big fan of fairy tales, folklore, yeah. um, and mythology. And I think mythology, at a, you know, again, I did not have the language to describe it at this time, but at the time, but it became a lifeline. So when mm-hmm. I was eight, so, you know, really probably less than a year into sort of this, this crisis unfolding in my life, mm-hmm. um, my third grade class did a history unit on ancient Egypt. And mm-hmm. that was how I first got introduced to Egyptian mythology. And I was spellbound. Um, I loved, I loved sort of the complexity and the multiplicity of the day, not just the deities, but how the religion lasted so long that really deities shifted over time and Mm -hmm. became, you know, sort of would sort of be associated with something. And then that would wane but then they'd become associated with something else. So almost mm. sort of like this mutable quality of the deities. And especially I was 
transfixed by one of the deities because obviously it's a third grade class. We're not going too deep into this. Um, <laughs> was the um, was the goddess Hathor, who was mm. initially kind of who was both the goddess of you know love and music and fertility and dance, um, but also in some of um, in one key myth, she's also the goddess of destruction, and she mm-hmm. is sent to Earth at a time when the gods feel that they are not getting sort of their rightful adoration from humanity, and she Ugh. is sent to Earth. Classic <laughs> gods. I <laughs> know. Just like, I just, <laughs> right? I feel like that, that story repeats itself across oh, many, many, yeah, many, times. Yeah. Um, and so the gods send Hathor in the form of this um, giant kind of lion. It, it don't, if I'm remembering correctly, she's sort of more than a lion, though, maybe almost a little chimera-ish. And she goes mm. on a murder spree, just slaughtering humanity. Wow. And after a while, the gods think, oh, shoot, she's going to kill everyone. And then there will be no (laughs) one. We really overshot. So they spill several barrels of beer and uh, dye it red. Mm. So she'll think it's blood. And she goes and she drinks and drinks and drinks, gets blackout drunk, falls asleep. They take her back to (laughs) their realm untransform her from this beast and when she wakes up they say um you know like oh like praise hathor goddess of love and beauty definitely not of destruction um (laughs) (laughs) and so that's amazing right And, and i share this because like even within mythologies there's sort of aspects of the gods that aren't known to themselves um and that kind of shadow self that idea of discovery just really struck me in the hathor myth and has kind of stayed with me um and really also helped again i did not have the words for this at the time or really have the had even made the connection consciously but my you know thinking about this idea of a shadow self this idea of you know complete metamorphosis from something you know that from a series of qualities that could be, you know, sort of a net good to a series of qualities that could be understood as like a net bad. Um, Mm -hmm. Looking at my own life at the time, I realized, oh, right, that really resonated with me because in some ways I was, I was trying to understand what was happening to my mom through, and Mm -hmm. mythology was kind of one of the first, like, complicated unresolved story mechanisms that Mm. i found that really felt as though it it was not trying to wrap everything up in a bow Um, and i deeply appreciated that as a kid because Mm -hmm. you know my situation my mom's situation was ongoing Mm -hmm. well and that's such an interesting myth in particular because that makes me think of the way that we interact with our parents in general, they Mm -hmm. have their own sort of constructed mythologies about, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that they present themselves to their Mm -hmm. children. And then we have our own mythologies about them. And as you grow older, all of that starts to crumble apart as you're like, Oh, these, uh, these are actual people, (laughs) you know, they have a lot of layers to them and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of stuff that they've overwritten uh, about themselves and about, you know, me growing up and, uh, so there's a lot of 
stuff wrapped up into that myth that feels like it would cater like i imagine that caters really well to someone trying to grapple with and understand their mom better absolutely absolutely and i really appreciate what you said as well about sort of there are mythologies we're writing about ourselves all the mm-hmm. time you know and kind of writing mm-hmm. and rewriting and overwriting um and redacting in some cases all the time yeah and it's not it's not only a, a egyptian mythology that love and destruction are together <laughs> so so i find it i I find it uh, very comforting. Like as an adult, I found it very comforting to to see that complexity mm-hmm. um, and read like fairy tales in their more original forms. Uh, you know, pre- like pre Disney <laughs> forms. <laughs> um, and I, I mean, I love my Disney, like whatever. But um, as far as making a complicated story, uh, sometimes. They don't always do that. Um, yeah, sometimes and, you need that Angela Carter spin or yeah, whoever. Right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, so I can, I can resonate with how that story of Hathor would have felt, felt at home with your transitioning mother, um, you know, and, and yeah, the, the changes she was, that you were seeing, perceiving. Yeah, and uh, where did you grow up, Megan? Um, I grew up just outside of Boston. Um, and okay. the benefit of having, uh, my parents divorced when I was three, so the benefit is mm-hmm. if you draw a 30, if you kind of put a pin in Boston and draw a 30 mile radius around it, I've pretty much lived in all of those places just because my awesome. of my parents <laughs> moving around a lot when I was younger. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Why was that, um, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, not at all. Um, and this actually is kind of a good segue into, I would say, like what the next two major like grief experiences oh, awesome. were I yeah. had were. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Dude, a good segue. <laughs> I know, we're just diving right in. So I want to totally find one of my personal beliefs about grief is that we don't really live in a society that allows for like ample time or expression yeah. or like honest mm-hmm. conversation about grieving. You know, it's sort of like you get your four to six weeks off like bereavement time and then you're supposed to be normal. And I think yeah. this is <laughs> different. Obviously there are different faith traditions have different rituals mm-hmm. that they incorporate. But um, so I'm a big proponent of sort of talking about grief and talking about how like, hey, I'm sort of 15 years out from the last major grief event in my life. And like, it's, it's still there. It's different, sure. but mm. it's a lifelong relationship now. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So why my parents moved around a lot. So mm-hmm. my, my dad, um, you know, when my parents divorced, uh, my mom kept the house. My dad lived in, you know, a few apartments before buying a house um, in another town north of Boston, and then eventually um, having to sell that house and then move into a town slightly further north of that town um, <laughs> with uh, the his partner at the time, with my mom, um, and this connects to sort of the the tarot, uh, the channeling piece and the tarot piece. She 
began, I would say I was about nine when this was going on, maybe 10, um, began to get a lot of messages from um, the, the beings she was channeling about how um, she was going to come into a large sum of money, um, okay. a very large sum of money, and that she didn't need to worry about paying bills right now mm. because that large sum of money was imminent and it was, you know, going to be in the millions of dollars and it was going to set us up for oh. life. Um, uh, spoiler alert, that did not happen. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, um, but one of the bills she stopped paying was the mortgage. And so mm. after a period of time and despite sort of my dad's best attempts at interceding, um, you know, the bank foreclosed on the house and it was auctioned oh. off. Um, and then my mom and for a period of time, I with her were, uh, were homeless for okay. a period of time. Mm. Um, and you know, I, to be clear, not homeless, you know, we always had a roof over our head, but homeless mm. in the sense of we didn't have a permanent address. There was a mm. lot of bouncing around between hotels and, mm. um, mm. you know, guest rooms at other people's houses. And sure. that was certain. I mean, certainly I had felt a specific kind of instability just living, you know, with the way things had been for the last, you know, four years with my mom, but this was just a new layer of instability. And you know, I think very, certainly very jarring for me as a child um, that it happened, but also sort of the need to keep my mom close, the need to protect her. So as she would say things like, oh, I woke up at 3 a.m. and was channeling and reading tarot and like it's actually a good thing the house got taken away because if we'd gotten the money while we had the house um it would like we would have sunk all the money into the house mm. and so mm. just sort of having to like engage with her in her cosmology um mm. despite my my own feelings about that situation which were like I sure miss having a house or like having a home. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I'd rather have a house. I don't know, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, wow. because, um, and so because of that, she and I were constantly on the move. Custody got switched, um, through some emergency injunctures when I was 12. Um, and at the time, part of the custody agreement was that, um, the judge in my parents' case felt strongly that I should be around neither of my parents for oh, a bit. Wow. Wow. Um, and so I went to boarding school for a couple of years and then yeah. kind of similarly, you know, came back and lived with my dad for high school and most of college. Um, and, and we continued to move around a little bit because he had for a while, um, kind of since I was in my early teens, been having financial difficulties of his own. Hmm. Wow. Oh. Yeah, the the sort of rootlessness is what I was like the word that popped in my head. What I I mean, I know I asked this at the beginning, um with your mom's shift, um, mm -hmm. but what kept you anchored 
during all of this time as well, like in your, I guess it would be your teenage years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is when I sort of went, I don't want to say deeper into mythology, but where sort of my reliance on mythology, reliance on storytelling, um, Mm -hmm. even if it was just to myself, um, and sort of beginning to understand that there's like modern mythologies um, that we we still lean on and engage with. Um, All of that really helped me, I would say, for the modern mythologies, um, well, for the regular mythology piece, um, you know, I started reading more kind of like less sugar-coated for kids and more sort of for adult readers, um, you know, books about mythology, both books of myths, but also books about sort of the the cultural context in which these myths were um, kind of arose and how the mythology informed so much of life. Um, So, you know, I was reading about ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, um, Greece and Rome. I started reading about um, Mayan mythology at that time as well Mm -hmm. and really uh, my pronunciation for most of the names is still like absolutely horrible, but found a lot of resonance in their story and th- that mythology as well. Or I shouldn't say resonance, but I was really drawn to it. There was just mm-hmm. kind of a worldview and a cosmology that felt um, very different from mm-hmm. a lot of other mythologies I've been reading, but sort of uh, like the bones were similar in some ways around like the types of stories that the myths told. Um, And then for modern mythologies, I, that it was in my teenage years that I got into playing video games and particularly Mm -hmm. uh, like role-playing games. And, and what I found I really loved about those was those two were kinds of mythologies. You know, there were distinct cosmos, cosmologies in the world. There were kind of distinct, uh, you know, rules about magic, but also there, there were these subtle mythologies in them that felt, Mm. it felt really exciting to kind of discover that because, you know, I, at the time beforehand, I thought, you know, video games were either just, you know, like, I don't know, like first person shooter games or super Mario brothers. So finding this sort of, new to me genre that felt really resonant and truthfully gave me a place where I had control, where Mm -hmm. I had control and could exercise control over Mm -hmm. events in a world. Um, So that felt deeply, um, deeply comforting. I grew up uh, when YA horror was really starting to boom. So it was a lot of like goosebumps and uh, are you afraid of the dark? And I think I really connected with that when I was young because uh, stories like the ones Arl Stein was telling sort of reveal the darker layer underneath mm. suburbia. And I lived in a huge neighborhood outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. So uh, there was a lot of suburbia that peeled back the, <laughs> the um, sort of glossy surface of. Um, so those types of stories really appealed to me when I was little for reason and the ways that they sort of picked apart that mythology. Um, I'm curious about what stories in particular you remember sort of being drawn to as a kid and and even now, like what are some video game 
mythos, mythos, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, <laughs> um, that you feel particularly drawn to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I would say one of the earliest ones that just kind of hooked me was um, a role-playing game for um, I played it on the original PlayStation, really dating myself here. Um, <laughs> and it was called Lunar, uh, Silver Star Story. And it was, you know, a very kind of typical, like, kids in small town or teenagers in a small town. There's an inciting event that kind of shifts their world completely. Mm-hmm. They decide to go out on an adventure learn lots about themselves and each other along the way and as you do right (laughs) save the world yeah Um, but one of the character i mean i guess i should say spoiler alert right now for folks who haven't (laughs) played the game but also do do you need spoiler alerts on things that are more than 20 years old i don't think so i probably not yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, so uh, the main character in that game is named Alex and his best friend is a young woman named Luna okay. who has blue hair and the entire world kind of worships this goddess named Alfina, mm. um, who, but there is a sense that her magic is waning and has waned. Mm. And after sort of the last, um, the last stand battle that the previous, um, four heroes, um, mm successfully completed to vanquish some darkness or dark, you know, evil thing that wanted to destroy the world. And what you learn pretty quickly in the game um, is that Luna herself is the goddess Althena who Mm. used the last of her power to convert herself into a baby um, because she was going to need so long to recover. Um, And then the previous uh, dragon master, um, had sort of given her to a family in this small village to raise as their own um, alongside the main character. And um, so just, I think that idea of like both potentiality, like you can be, you know, I'll speak for me, the idea that, uh, or I'll use I statements, the idea that I was like a hot mess of an adolescent, but could, you know, that there was this, potential that maybe I could be something more. Um, and, and that more might already be in like in me, like it's waiting to be activated was really appealing. Um, and similarly, this idea of like divine power waning from the world, um, Mm. and just what, what does it mean to come up against when sort of your own belief system is questioned or you're being confronted with things that are shaking the foundation of that belief system. And I think Mm. that in general, sort of how characters in these games confront that those cracks in the foundation of their belief um, is probably one of the main things that will draw me into a game. Mm. Mm. I like that a lot. Do you play as Luna? In that game, you don't. Okay. And I, I was like, "That is a like." I understand why you. Yeah, I understand why you couldn't in yeah. the main plot, but like, come on now, could we yeah. release like a DLC and yeah. the Luna cut? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. 
So you play as Alex yeah. discovering all of this. That yeah. I mean, it, it does oh. make sense <laughs> from the plotting standpoint, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, when, uh, because you were, you were in the MFA program, mm-hmm. um, from 2006 to 2008, yeah. when did you start writing some of these stories or poetry? I mean, you write a lot of different, in a lot of different, uh, genres, but yeah. Yeah. So I had been kind of writing on and off, like in the sense of, you know, I took a poetry class at or poetry workshop at summer camp when I was 13 and wrote mm-hmm. what I thought at the time was just like the best poem in the world about Joan of Arc because, of you know, <laughs> <laughs> I definitely had that obsession um, when I was an adolescent. And, you know, I look at the poem now and I, I'm glad it just exists as like an image file uh, somewhere, um, <laughs> not out in the world. but. Um, I still loved writing it. Like I recognize mm-hmm. now that like it was the best I could do as like a 13 year old. And I think where I, where I am now is obviously like I have a clearer sense of my voice and sort of my focus areas as an author. But, um, you know, so I was always kind of like dabbling in poetry okay. and would do a lot of short story assignments um, for school after I graduated college, I also got an English degree and like, shucks, the big poetry company wasn't hiring. So oh, I, had, I know, no. who dare they? Yeah. Um, <laughs> poetry Inc. Right. <laughs> exactly. um, and I, I was kind, getting kind of nervous because I had been telling myself this story for a while that I'm going to become a lawyer. Um, okay. My dad had been a lawyer it seemed like a very, like, you do your three years of law school, you have kind you know, it felt like a very stable career and one that Mm. could bring, could allow me to kind of build my own financial security. Mm. Um, And then, um, but I was so, I kept getting like really upset before the Mm. LSATs and finally it hit me and I talked with my dad about this and he was great. Um, which was like, I don't think I want to be a lawyer. I think the fact that I cry every time I registered for the LSAT um, (laughs) is a good indication that this is not the path. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he and I were talking about writing and sort of like, I don't know what you do with that. Like, I don't know where that takes you, but he really gave me permission or I shouldn't say permission, but he really acknowledged that this has sort of been a core part of who I am for so long and mm-hmm. affirmed that like wanting to try um, and see where it leads you is like a wonderful thing. So before I applied to Goddard, I made two decisions. One was that I wanted to try to get a couple things published and I wanted to write an entire book start to finish because I wanted to know that I could do that on my own. Okay. Mm. And uh, so thankfully I found um, back in the days of like when this kind of thing was on Craigslist, um, there was like a local digital zine called um, some other magazine that was Boston based. Okay. At least the founders were based in Boston that said, you know, hey, we're looking for writers, like send us something. And I had 
no idea. Like I read a few of their articles and I just went for it. And I wrote a piece and heard back from them a few days later. And it, the piece had really struck a chord with one of the editors who was like, we would love to bring you on. He's like, if this is what you do, his name is Jason Leary. So shout out to my friend, Jason. Um, <laughs> Jason. And, um, and he basically said, look, like, we want to publish this piece. It's so good. And like, we'd love to bring you on to write regularly for us. So oh, I got awesome. to write cool. for some other magazine um, for a bit, um, which is great. And I, in the interim, I wrote my, I wrote a book. Um, looking back, the book was not very good, um, <laughs> but I wrote it. Um, and I think that was really important to me because I wanted to know that, you know, because grad school is a finite period of time. And I wanted to know that I at least had the ability to kind of make myself do the thing. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, so um, well, I guess, and the other piece that sort of like led me to Goddard, which is really interesting, is um, I was researching MFA programs. Um, and you know, you see a lot of the big ones, like, uh, and I was like, Ooh, Ooh, I don't think, I don't think like that feels like maybe a stretch, um, just mm. given that I'm still so new. And, um, my mom was actually the one who found out about Goddard and kind wow. of shared mm. the website with me. And then, wow. um, you know, looking through that, I thought this actually seems really, really cool. I like the fact that it's low residency and that, um, you know, I, I was really, really drawn to the super one-on-one -on -one approach or, mm -hmm. um, for the teaching. So I applied and, um, and the, I, the rest is history. Like I got in <laughs> and started in 2006. Nice. Well, so what was that first book that you wrote and how did your writing evolve from uh, that? I'm sure it's not as bad as you say it is <laughs> from that first, like, quote unquote, bad book. Uh, how did your writing evolve from there over the course of your time at Goddard? Sure. Um, so that book was a fantasy book because I thought like, oh, I really want to write like fantasy. Right. In, in some ways, I've been... Yeah enmeshed in these questions of like, what is fantasy? What is reality? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we understand systems of belief? Um, you know, just through my own lived experience. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to write a fantasy novel. This is going to be the next Lord of the Rings. Watch out. Um, <laughs> awesome. And the book was really about, um, it sort of took the, the mythologies or, or the, the myth of Atlantis and also the myth of Lemuria mm -hmm. and told the story of the rise and fall of those civilizations through the perspective of the deity, the kind of main deity and the sort of constellation of divine actors that were either directly or indirectly involved mm -hmm. in it. Wow. And what was it called? Um, it was called Des, which was the nickname of the the main divine character. Um, oh, okay. And, and looking back, mm -hmm. I was like, "Oh, right, that was I was th that was my avatar, right? She was clearly my avatar." I, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
And mm-hmm. so did you continue to explore fantasy a bit um, at Goddard? I know you were talking about reading uh, Roger Zelazny. Um, so I did. And there's a couple, I think um, I can tell the Goddard story and then the sort of major grief turning point also happened during my time at Goddard, mm-hmm. which I, I don't know about your you, you all's time there, but I feel like almost everyone I know there had some major like life event occur during the two years of that program. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I've, yeah. That's a thumbs up from me. I don't know yeah. about you, Amanda. <laughs> uh, there is a major life. Uh, th- I mean, what brought me to Goddard was, was grief um, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out my way through it. Um, my, first love uh had died and in a like bike accident uh just like run over by a car and i had spent probably in 2006 january 2006 and so i spent most of 2006 and a lot of 2007 trying like just reading all my old journals from when we were together and like all the old Emails, not letters. <laughs> Emails from when we were dating. And um, at one point he had called, he, or no, I had said in a journal, he's truly my soulmate. But I never said that out loud or wrote it again in all, like I journal daily. And I mean, in all of that writing, I never used that term again and so i was like very curious about soulmates like what what do Mm. other people call you know call soulmates like what is the definition of soulmates so i so i was blogging Mm. doing this blog called the soulmate project and um in it i was asking people about their mythology you know like what stories contribute to their idea of soulmate and so Mm. um I did that for several months <laughs> and I, I I was also reading a lot of Joseph Campbell at the time. And um, it kind of, I'm like, I want to deepen this study. And so that's, that's when I found Goddard. Uh, I also found Pacifica graduate Institute where Joseph Campbell's papers are um, housed. Uh, and that was my first choice, actually. <laughs> like I've said oh. that on this podcast before that Goddard was not my first choice, but I and I was accepted there. But what else happened when I was trying to make this decision? I got into both of those schools was that I met the person who is now my husband, <laughs> who has been my husband, oh. um, or we've been together since 2007. And so we did not get married then. <laughs> Just we got married in 2013. But there was something about our connection that made me want to figure it out. Like, and so that's why I ended up choosing Goddard was because because of the low residency and I could still live in New York and uh go up there and all of that. So like it became this for me, it was this. It, I was still grieving and he, he knew it. And I, you know, was like very supportive during it, but it was also tr- transforming. Um, mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, just my own sort of psychology about love and where, how it changes or how relationships change um, uh, when 
when someone has died? Um, and is it okay <laughs> to feel like you move past grieving? And so th- that's all of those were like part of my questions while I was at Goddard that that sort of arose out of af- after applying. <laughs> so yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That is- so powerful, Amanda. Um, wow. I deeply, deeply resonate. Um, <laughs> especially that question of sort of like, you know, what does moving on mean about mm-hmm. your relation, you know, your relationship, your connection with someone you've lost? Um, mm-hmm. One of the uh, the my current work in progress, so not kinesiophobia. That's out now. Um, but uh, my current work in progress actually has an entire section dedicated to this question of like, or, or me kind of processing and pressing on this question of a belief I subconsciously held, um, which was sort of, if the pain of the loss becomes less, mm. does that somehow mean I now love the person I lost less? Right. Mm, wow. Yeah. And that's, I mean, my, that, that is a question that I have also grappled mm-hmm. with. And, and my instinct is no, <laughs> it does not mean <laughs> yeah, that I, I love someone <laughs> less. But it, it's hard when you're in that moment and then kind of, um, and, Joan Didion with uh, Year of Magical Thinking, mm-hmm. she's dealing with that, that whole, year and even through the um through the end of that book i mean you don't have an answer <laughs> at the right. end of the book <laughs> so while while my instinct is to say of course not you know of course it doesn't mean you love them less it doesn't feel that way when you're the one going through the grieving process because mm-hmm. it becomes like a part of you it becomes part of your like every day and then when it's not, or when it lessens, it's like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> like, right. you, yeah, it's, it's like, whoa, what happened? Right. And I think that like that raw immediacy of grief is mm-hmm. so all consuming mm-hmm. in such a way that like, at, at least I'll, I'll use I statements. Like I forgot there was any other way to feel. I forgot mm-hmm. that I'd ever felt any other way before. Um, mm-hmm. And it was just, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of, heavy, almost intolerable, mm-hmm. just sense of aloneness and loss mm-hmm. and sadness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> wow. Yeah. So the the Goddard story. <laughs> when once when you were there, um, were you working on a piece or several pieces that were dealing with with grief or loss so i didn't plan on it mm-hmm. um you know i went in thinking all right i've written one fantasy book like know how to do that gonna gonna write another um mm-hmm. <laughs> and even before i found out i'd gotten accepted to goddard um in february of 2006 my mother passed away very suddenly. Um, I, she had asked if I would meet her at a food pantry she had been going to because my dad was having financial troubles at the time. So she said, Oh, like I can get stuff for you 
as well. And then, you know, we'll divide it up and we'll, you know, that'll be that. Um, And she started complaining that she was busy in the parking Mm. lot. So she sat down and like pretty much slipped out of consciousness. um, Couldn't wake her up, called an ambulance. Um, It turns out that what had happened is she had had um, an incredibly intense spike in her blood pressure and actually um, hemorrhaged, which was strong enough to apparently burst through a particular blood vessel um, that was in her brainstem. So she had a hemorrhage right in her brainstem that effectively, um, um, I mean, we, she was at, she got to the hospital in time that, you know, she did not pass away, but, um, she wouldn't have been able to really live without, Mm. um, without being on machines constantly. And I knew, enough of her and she had actually mentioned um that you know sort of oh i wouldn't want to be kept alive by machines if that was the only way in response to a a news um a news story that had happened i think it was on the terry shibo case oh yeah sure um -hmm. and so i knew enough about her wishes to know that you know when we got to the point of you know she's not coming out of this this is irreparable brain damage she can won't really be able to even get enough oxygen on her own um you know i made the decision based on what she had said and told me and what i knew of her to um take her off life support and just provide comfort care until she passed so um and that whole pro um you know from she was in the hospital for about five days before um, that happened. But um, so I lost her even before I knew that I had gotten accepted into this program that she had um, really been the one that found for me. Yeah. Um, wow. But I, I had several months between losing her and starting at Goddard because I think I started in the summer residency. Okay. Um, and I was... But, you know, obviously that was still just a handful of months. I was still grieving and still in some ways processing sort of her life and who she was and how she thought, um, how it impacted mine, um, how it impacted me and how I think. And, but, you know, on my application, it still said like, I want to write a fantasy novel. Right, (laughs) right, right. um, I got uh, in sort of one of the greatest serendipitous moments of my life. I got paired with Rachel Pollack um, as my advisor, who's a brilliant, um, both a brilliant science fiction um, and fantasy author, also a graphic novel author, and herself a one of like the leading tarot experts in the world. Okay. Um, And so with Rachel, you know, I was still trying to figure out the kind of thing I wanted to do. You know, I sort of had a couple core ideas that I liked, which was specifically sort of focusing on, um, you know, setting something in the afterlife, which I'm sure was not a, was not inspired by any recent personal <laughs> right. events. No, God no. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, but I also realized that I wrote my long fiction much differently than I wrote my short fiction. And my short fiction Mm -hmm. tended to be 
much more poetic, much more experimental. I sort of, even though I didn't do line breaks, it had some clear like rhythm. It had internal rhyming structures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember asking Rachel once, why don't I write my long fiction the way I write my short fiction? And she wisely said, yeah, why don't you? <laughs> um, and yeah. that was a really big turning point for me as a writer mm-hmm. because that got sort of brought the core of what I think is now my voice as an author into sort of the main body of work I was producing in the program. Um, I was fortunate enough to work with Rachel um, my first and second semester. Mm-hmm. Um, and then toward the end of my second semester, so um, or I would say, sorry, early on in my second semester, just really a few days after the anniversary of my mom's passing, uh, my dad called me from the hospital to inform me that um, he had been suspecting something was wrong for a while because he was having trouble swallowing and it felt like his throat was blocked. Oh, God. Mm. And um, he had esophageal cancer. Wow. Um, and so there was about three months. So really the majority of my second semester was sort of spent like trying to make sure I was doing, you know, working on my thesis, um, turning my packets in on time, but also caring for my dad. Um, and a few weeks before the last packet was due, um, there was a pretty big emer- medical emergency where he had checked in for a round of radiation. He had a slight fever. So they said, we can't do the radiation today. We'd like to keep you here overnight for observation. He got worse and worse, um, Mm. sicker, but also delirious. Um, And it turns out what was going on is that he was septic because um, Mm. he couldn't swallow anything that wasn't like a liquid. So in order to enough nutrition he had a feeding tube in his stomach Mm -hmm. um, and his intestines had twisted around that feeding tube and so he was yeah so he was kind of sort of like drowning in his own body um so there was emergency surgery which he was a success but he never woke up from the anesthesia and over the next couple of weeks he just sort of slipped away until um you know, it became clear that, you know, one day I was going in to visit and um, the nurses stopped me in the hallway um, before even getting to the ICU and said, like, this, this is it. He's he's dying. There's nothing more we can do. So I lost my dad about two weeks before or, you know, a, a couple weeks before the end of the semester. And I was my dad was such a big proponent of school and education and such Mm. a big supporter of me and my own writing that I decided, well, let me turn this last packet in early and just mention in the letter what's going on. So at least I've completed my work this semester. And, you know, Rachel, once she read it, she just reached out to me and was herself a lifeline um, during this very strange period of months where I had to sort of clean out his house, but I had been staying with him while he was sick. So also having to sort of find my own living situation and make that, uh, you know, to just do all of the logistical survival things I needed to do while hoping, you know, while actively grieving. 
God. That wow. is amazing, <laughs> Megan. <laughs> like, I... Yeah. The last thing I would think about is turning in packets um, if I was going through that. I mean, I, I look back now and I kind of want to like shake my past self and think like, what were you doing? You should have just emailed and been like, nothing's happening. Here's yeah. what's going on. But yeah, did it help? Did it help uh, like anchor you to, I keep saying that. I'm sorry. I just keep saying the, that word today, but did it help give, give you something to do to? I, absolutely. I mean, I think on some level, I was desperate for something to stay the same. Yeah. And Goddard had been a constant for the last year. So almost wanting to continue, not just in the program, but the with the rhythm that I'd become accustomed to felt a little bit like one solid thing I could hold on to. Yeah. Um, well, and it strikes me, you know, the story of Luna that you were talking about being drawn to as a kid is about, um, you know, finding that inner power and inner magic in yourself. And then you have these experiences where you are taking care of your parents and making decisions. And so that feels like, you know, sort of cashing in on that idea of finding power and magic within yourself. And so I'm curious, uh, what are the stories that you feel drawn to just in the last couple of years? Like, how has that changed from the stories that you resonated with as a kid now that you've gone through these experiences? Absolutely. Um, and I have to, before answering this, I have to give a shout out to the other advisor I worked with primarily at Goddard, Jeannie Mackin. Um, because mm. I kind of showed up for an office meeting with her six weeks after my dad had passed, deciding in my mind that I didn't want to make a big deal out of that. Um, <laughs> and, and so we were kind of building a reading list. I had a lot of long books and you know, a lot oh, of series. Short books across the board. That's my Goddard <laughs> advice for everybody. Short <laughs> I... I second that advice. And because toward the end of the meeting, um, Jeannie said, you know, is there anything else? And I said, well, I don't know if this is relevant, but, and then mentioned, you know, what the last, say like six ish, six ish months of my life had looked like. Mm -hmm. And she was like, and then kind of looked at the list. You know, she had kind of a, a somewhat surprised look on her face in the sense of, I would say that you becoming an orphan in the last right. several Year. months is yeah. um, relevant. Mm -hmm. And then she looked at the reading list and she said, you're not reading any of these. She said, we're not giving you anything oh, wow. over a hundred pages, but actually mm. it was these sort of strange, like slim, slightly hybrid genre books that really mm. became, I, I mean, I fell in love with them. Um, mm. I'm, trying to the one that really sticks out for, or the two that really stick out for me from that time were um Ursul Molinaro's book Positions with White Roses which is really mm. about a family navigating the first holiday after mm. the loss of one of their children oh, wow. and then the other book was um Bonnie Copiel's Incubation a Space for Monsters which is mm. similarly wow. about sort of finding you know, being dropped in something that feels so foreign. Um, mm. And what does it mean to navigate this world? Um, 
And I highly recommend both of those books if folks have not read them. So um, yeah, I'm excited. But really, it was those books that Jeannie introduced me to. And I only kind of hit upon this years later, years after Goddard. But those were the books I wanted to read. And those were the books I wanted to write. I wanted to write shorter, hybrid, slightly Mm -hmm. experimental, kind of dreamlike things that are pieces of writing that, you know, didn't necessarily you know, like plot wasn't the most important thing. It was sort of emotional reality was the most important thing. Mm. Megan, you describe your newest book, Kinesiophobia. You got it. Awesome. As such, a hybrid memoir, sorry. It's a (laughs) hybrid memoir covering loss, intergenerational trauma, and the mythologies we build to survive the losses we face. Maybe more importantly, it's a book that fearlessly explores grief and the myriad complexities we face as we begin healing from our own personal apocalypses. Awesome. Um, Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, One of my questions was, how did it come about? But I can kind of Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, but can can you talk can you talk about the book and and um the story behind it and how how it how it did come about? Absolutely. Um I wanted to write about losing my dad, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to write something that was, you know, kind of straightforward memoir. I wanted to write about it in a way that conveyed how it felt to actually lose him, like how it felt to, you know, be holding him in my arms when he took his last breath and his heart stopped beating. Mm. And for me, I always come back to kind of mythologies and folklore as ways to buttress and frame those personal stories um, and can kind of situate them in something greater um, Mm. or in something more widely shared. Yeah, so I actually worked on this book on and off for several years, um, maybe about eight or nine, to be totally honest. Oh, wow. And it was, it was feeling a little bit like my white whale. Like, what <laughs> am I? Like? Um, but really, I had this like aha moment where I'd been trying to write this as, you know, envisioning this as a novel length piece. But also, all of the books I was drawn to reading were these slimmer, dreamlike pieces or dreamlike works. And I started playing with the idea of writing Kinesiophobia as a shorter book that had a very um, particular structure that is used to explore how similar tragedies occur across, across generations. And actually, the title kinesiophobia is a um is a rare psychiatric condition where if someone say like injures them their shoulder playing um tennis or something even though the injury heals they will develop um a deep fear of re-injuring themselves and Mm -hmm. that fear will manifest Um, in them slowly not moving that part of their body to a point where it's almost like a self-inflicted paralysis for portions Mm. of their body. And I thought that sounded, that to me was so striking because it felt metaphorically similar to, you know, a lot of 
stories from my dad's side of the family, you know, around, um, you know, dating all the way back to the Acadian expulsion and sort of why, you know, um, cause my dad's originally from Louisiana, um, okay. his entire family's from there. And our last name is actually, you know, considered to be sort of in the Acadian family tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but really th- learning about the Acadian expulsion and how, you know, there were, this is not me blaming anyone, but really in hindsight, you see like there were so many signs and like people were so scared and were being kind of, but still being like constricted by that fear. Um, and were maybe, you know, not sure how to kind of move or run or flee before kind of the, the, the forced exile and the forced deportations began. Mm. Um, and similarly, you know, my dad's side of the family was in and around um, New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, and many wow. of them decided to stay put and ride out the storm. And thank goodness everyone's made it and was okay. But, you know, growing up in the Boston area, I was like, I would leave if that thing was barreling down. Like yeah. if that was headed toward my current apartment, I would not be in it. Um, yeah. So really just this, un- trying to understand these different places in our lives um, mm. or in sort of my own family's mythology about mm. like, where were the times where we just froze mm-hmm. um, and we didn't yeah. run. And even, you know, similarly with my dad, he, put off getting tested or, you know, he had mm. kind of sent something was wrong for months, but put off getting tested, which is in no way me blaming him, but just another kind of facet of like how this question of like freezing and paralysis comes into play. Mm. Um, well, and that uh, reminds me of what I was going to say, which is that when I was working on memoir and talking about memoir so much at Goddard, one of the main things that kept coming up was the sense of, emotional truth above all. So I really resonate with what you were saying about, you know, the facts and the actual situations can be pretty much anything as long as you're getting at the emotional core of that story that you're trying to understand and convey an understanding about, you know, it's it's never so much about the story itself, as much as it is that conveying your comprehension of why the story happened, you know, or, or like what it meant to you. So I, I think that's all really fascinating, you know? Yeah, that's, I, I mean, I, when you said the times that you froze, my, I, my, I, <laughs> I got, person. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like, I love this idea of taking your personal loss and, framing it in a larger historical context, but also myth- mythological mm-hmm. context. Um, I can't wait to read it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super excited. Yeah. Is that where, where can people buy the book? Sure. So I will say um, the book is available at most major, you know, retailers, but um, small presses are doing like, are consistently putting out some of the most daring and Mm -hmm. like, at least for my taste as a reader, like some of the most Mm -hmm. like striking and compelling work. So Mm -hmm. I would say, please, please support small presses. And Mm -hmm. um, 
order directly from Therabooks, and okay. we'll put the we'll put the oh. um, link in the the notes. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm really excited about your book, and I, I as I said, I can't wait to read it. Um, one of the things that when I was looking at your website, uh, another thing <laughs> of many things that resonated with me was you said, um, you say, we do not live in a culture that affords us the opportunity to deeply engage with the complexity of grief, even though we all experience it, which I am super, feel super connected to. Uh, one of the guests that we had on this podcast, Rachel Rice, um, she talked, she, she is a death worker. That's what she uh, mm. described herself as. And we, she and I had this long conversation about ritual and um, how Western culture especially feels like, like removed from, from ritual and uh, around dying and grief. Mm-hmm. I am Filipino or like my parents are Filipino and I was born actually in Boston. <laughs> I was born in Boston, but oh, um, wow. yeah, because that's where my, that's, that was the entry point. But um, being Filipino, uh, my mom, the, uh, the approach to death is like really different. I don't remember. So Mike Alvarez is another person that we spoke with on this podcast, who's a, also a close friend and he's, he's Filipino as well. And he he talked about he he grew up there and he talked about when um or he has talked to me about when um someone's death anniversary comes around or like the all all souls day mm-hmm. um they go and sleep in the cemetery and like mm-hmm. start, you know clean the graves and all of that and the pixar movie coco like really resonated with me mm-hmm. um on that level like there's just this kind of understanding and closeness of like your ancestors and um my mom will text the the whole family like when like my immediate family when it's somebody's birthday or death day death anniversary and um you know she she's like told me like ghost stories (laughs) like we call we call them ghost stories but she just she's like oh i saw your your grandfather, like her father, um, she she saw him over my bassinet, like right after I was born, when she was still in the hospital, and he had been dead for like a year. Or she like thinks about him every time, you know. She says he sends her like the rainbows, like so, like when rainbows come. So the reason I'm talking about all of that um, <laughs> is because uh, the the page on your website where where you where you say say that is um about no new mythology mm-hmm. um your upcoming literary series and um how you wanted to create a space for your your work so can you tell me like your work with grief so can you tell us um how that what that series is going to look like and how it acts as a practice for you absolutely um and thank you for sharing like your your story and your your family's story as well. Um, I really, a lot of what you said really resonated with me just in the sense of um, 
like how we imagine a continuation of someone's life after Mm -hmm. we've lost them. Um, And how do we, you know, the building of ritual is deeply important to me um, as well. Um, I actually, after Goddard, I went and got another master's degree um, focused focused on uh, theology with a particular look at like medical anthropology and ritual anthropology and sort of where the two intersect. Um, So that's a a big part of where, um, or that was a big part in my educational journey that deeply informed um, how I think about ritual now. Mm -hmm. Um, And how I think about its relationship to stories and storytelling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as I said, for me, um, myths have always just kind of been a a source of comfort. And in some cases, they felt more true than at least emotionally. Sometimes they have been the truest things I've been able to engage with um, at various difficult times in my life. So I will, you know, for instance, um, like go back and I don't know, there's so many, but, um, you know, the myth of Persephone's abduction to the underworld, Mm -hmm. um, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. the myth about Hathor, these are things I've come back to over and over as, uh, as I have started and continued to think a little bit more intentionally about my own grief and the what I call the long form work of grief. So like, what is this, you know, there's sort of this raw immediacy, but there's this much longer arc that I think we, we all navigate. Um, but we really don't talk about in a lot of places. Um, certainly haven't seen a ton of TikToks about it. So it feels (laughs) like it's not quite where it maybe needs to be in the cultural consciousness. Um, So No New Mythology is um, will be a monthly literary series. We're going to start with one um, long-form essay a month. And that essay will sort of braid together a retelling, either a, a retelling of a myth or kind of maybe even a retelling of one component of a myth or an exploration into one mythological figure mm. in the context of what does this teach us about grief mm. um, wow. and sort of using my own lived experiences as an anchoring point, because I, you know, I know from personal experience when I was younger and had a little less tact around this, I, you know, saying like, Oh my gosh, like, do you want to talk about grief? Let's just talk about it. Doesn't always make folks feel like safe and ready to have that conversation. So um, wanting to kind of also just be as vulnerable and authentic as I can be about my own stories and how I've understood this connection, but also what might that mean for someone else? What might that mean at a larger kind of community or even cultural level? Mm, I love wow. that. And so will you be sharing these essays on like through a newsletter or how, how do you envision it? Yeah. So it will be done digitally through a newsletter. Um, mm-hmm. If folks are interested, um, they can sign up on my website. Um, mm-hmm. I will say since this is, you know, I'm launching this, this is um, fairly new. So I'm going to be sort of figuring out what works with both the model and the pricing. Um, but if folk, 
if folks um, find find this newsletter through this podcast, I would love to be able to offer like a sort of several month long like trial for them. Aww. Wow. Oh, awesome. Cool. Can I can we give them some sort of code or whatever? Yep, it'll actually be um, pretty easy. What I can do is I can build um, a specific page okay. for them with a direct link that then we um, can put in the program notes. Perfect. Oh, cool. That would be great. That's awesome. Do you do you do your own website? It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I manage it. I did mm-hmm. not design it. Okay. Um, so I will shout out um, uh, Peach Bomb Creative out of Georgia um, and uh, their lead, Chris Petri-Baumer, who did my website um, after I had been neglecting to do one for about 15 years. Um, <laughs> um, oh, we all have. <laughs> yeah, Chris did everything. He did the design. He's, you know, a graphic designer by training as well. So he also did all of the, you know, typography selections, the building the color palette. Um, so he was really great. Nice. Wow. That's cool. That's awesome. Well, I'm very excited for, for all of these things. I will also sign up, but um, for the no new mythology, maybe it'll spark my own practice in thinking about like rethinking about mythology. It's been a while. Like I'm, I'm like, so I had a baby in January and Congratulations. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, I can hear him crying in the living room. I, my oh, husband's man. with him. But <laughs> He's by like, himself. Yeah. It's yeah. like, uh, I'm recording a podcast. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But in this time, um, because I I stay at home full time, um, I looked at I look at my bookshelves a lot because they're out in the living room, and I see all these mythology books that I have from my grad school from from Goddard, and I'm like, am I gonna read these again? (laughs) Like, if it would feel really weird to get rid of them because they are such a huge part of my life but I just haven't done anything with them lately and so yeah so but I'm excited to 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 read your work and uh see how it you know maybe it'll spark something for myself (laughs) thank you thank you well I this won't be relevant by the time the podcast is out unless we get super delayed which I will let you both know about um (laughs) but uh we will be offering a special through the press where if you pre-order the book directly from the press, you'll get a one-year pre-subscription to No New Mythology. Ooh. Wow, cool. We can can promote that on social anyway, like even if it's not on, like even if it's not relevant on the podcast. We can do a mini-sode with just that and like a bit about the book. Yep. Yeah, we, we definitely can um, pre-order the book through Thera, mm-hmm. right? One-year subscription, or yep. and just to be totally transparent, the subscription price is like a dollar a month, so it's like twelve bucks a year. It's not like I'm going to turn around and charge folks like five hundred dollars on their card. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I also believe in like, I, as I'm sure you can, you both can understand, like. So much of the expectation around writing mm-hmm. is that you just give it away for free. And I'm oh, like, yeah, well, no. like, mm-hmm. 
I looking at models like Substack, I'm like, mm-hmm. I actually think like it's not unfair to ask, especially if you're writing about like deeply traumatic personal of stuff course. and grief. I feel like it's not unfair to ask that there be a little bit of compensation. Of course. And then like <laughs> Patreon feels like so much work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. to, to, you you have to like create all this special content and yeah. I'm like I don't have time for that. <laughs> like that's a yeah. lot. Yeah, I don't know how people do it. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. the tears and everything. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've uh, I've seen some visual artists do it really well. Um, mm-hmm. but I also think it's I don't want to say easier cuz every, you know, creating art of any kind is inherently like challenging and life affirming and wonderful and sometimes a little terrible. Um, but you know, at, when there's like a physical artifact, you can send someone like that mm-hmm. feels really important. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like print out like a bunch of poems on in, like index <laughs> cards and mail them to people. Like, is that what we're, that feels like not what no. people want. I feel like it would, I mean, we're going, yeah. Like, I feel like it would be like, you have to do something custom, which feels like way more work. <laughs> so yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do work. Yeah. Well, I don't want to like have to write people individual poems. That's like even when I think about Kickstarter, you know, there are some artistic endeavors that I've seen like handling uh, donor recognition really thoughtfully on Kickstarter. Like there was mm-hmm. actually a video game that got, which is now one of my favorite games. It's mm-hmm. called Bloodstained Ritual of the Night. Um, but it's kind of the spiritual successor to Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which is oh, another cool. fantastic game. But like the way they handled rewards in Bloodstained was like at a certain level, if you donated, like I forget what the amount was, but they would like, use any photo of either a photo of you or if you wanted a photo of your pet and they would like (laughs) make little like oil painting style versions that would hang all over the castle which i thought that was super cute but then i'm like oh kicks like kickstartering a book oh my gosh at some level you can be like i'll name a character after you and then you're like oh no yeah (laughs) yeah that's that's so, so if people pre-order the book through Thera, how, like, will will you just have their name for the like no new mythology, or is there somewhere that they should? Um, what I what I will do because the pre-orders would happen through Thera's website, mm-hmm. um, which is then I will get a list every few days that the pre-order campaign is open um, of just name and email that then I will through my website send out invitations with special links for people to just click on and sign up for the one year um, free subscription. Awesome. Okay. So, so yeah. So if they pre-order the book, they don't have to do anything else. Just look out for an email from, from you. Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. That's great. And when can they pre-order the book until? Uh, 
That's a good question. We don't know yet. Um, So the book should be out at some point in October. We're hoping that pre-orders will open mid-September, but I can reach back out to you both with those confirmed dates because right now we are just working on um, getting one more blurb and finalizing the cover, which will, once we have the cover image, that will allow us to open the pre-orders. Okay. Mm. We are also working on an audio book um, okay. of this. Ooh. So that sh- will be out uh, later this fall after the initial kind of digital and paperback um, publication. But um, the audio book is coming. Nice. Cool. Do you know the narrator? Uh, that will probably be me. Okay. Oh, okay. Good. Nice. nice. <laughs> um, mostly as a cost mitigation strategy. <laughs> I, I mean, I prefer memoirs to be read by the people that wrote them. <laughs> it seems only right. Yeah. I think it makes sense. Um, seems yeah. more honest. Yeah. Yeah. That's so yeah. cool. Okay, so um, we are coming to a close, Mm -hmm. um, but I have two questions, very important. Um, (laughs) What RPG are you playing right now? And are you a purist with chocolate or do you like like different (laughs) flavors? Because like my brother-in-law is anti-nougat or strawberry (laughs) fillings. So... Um. The, the hard-hitting questions yeah. for the end. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I, I relaxed you, and then it's like, oh, shoot. Uh, you got me all comfy talking about grief and loss, and now I have to think about chocolate. Um, so right now, the RPG I am playing is... I'm actually replaying a favorite RPG um, called Nino Kuni, Wrath of the White mm-hmm. Witch, And it is just the most charming RPG because (laughs) it is developed in collaboration with Studio Ghibli. So lovely. The visuals look like you're just in a Studio Ghibli movie. And the plot line is really, really charming. And also, interestingly, starts off with a death. Um, That is sort of... And the main character journey is very much driven by him actively grieving the loss of his mother oh wow wow Wow. that's that's awesome i mean awesome but like very relevant yeah yeah Yeah. but it's also just cute and charming and similarly to pokemon you have like little familiars that fight for you um (laughs) but they're like they're, some of them are so strange, but I just, they're, they're darling. They're little portmanteaus of like, you know, several different creatures. Um, mm-hmm. So it, um, I'm really enjoying it. And in terms of chocolate, I don't think I'm a purist okay. in the regard of, in the sense Good. of, I won't say no to a filling. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I won't, I actually quite like white chocolate in okay. some applications. Mm-hmm. Um that said, the quality of the chocolate and the filling matters greatly. Sure. Um, so like, actually, I was fortunate enough to go to Paris in April of this year with... Um, April in Paris. Yeah, <laughs> several of my um, several really close friends and all of 
everyone in the group is a great lover of chocolate. Um, Mm -hmm. So we would sort of spread out and go to different chocolate shops that we had on our individual list and then bring the selection back and be able to try and share to figure out um, what would, um, you know, like what other stores we wanted to go back to. And, you know, I will say like, oh my gosh, like pistachio mousse in a dark chocolate shell. Mm. Wow. That sounds amazing. That feels like an unexpected answer. Yeah. I support it. I do too. (laughs) Thank you. But similarly, there were, you know, just what were called kind of like the earth truffles, which are Mm -hmm. just the like pure dark chocolate ganache with a dusting of cocoa powder on the outside. And they were also fabulous. Yeah. I think it's kind of hard to get bad chocolate in Paris. So. <laughs> I I mean, I'm sure you could, but if you're if you as a group are seeking out the good chocolate shops, then you're probably fine. But was there was there a winner amongst the chocolate shops? There was not a <laughs> There were different winners for different types of sure. chocolate. Yeah. Um, so, you know, truffles had a winner. Mm-hmm. Um, the more kind of confection like confectionery like chocolates. Um, so, you know, little squares filled with caramel or something. Different shop was a winner. The the bars, just chocolate bars, mm-hmm. different shop was the winner. <laughs> um, so we we took this oh, very serious. Yeah, you really went through it all. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> we keep joking that we should do at at some point we should do another trip, um, but set it up like a bracket for yeah. like chocolate, totally. cheese, and bread, and nice. just figure out oh like what God. the actual best is uh, yeah. for our. For, I shouldn't say the best. What our favorite is as yeah. like a consensus favorite is for all yeah. of those things. Yeah, what no, your I, favorite is, and then which one is the objective best? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> by law. <laughs> yeah. So, and you should take that bracket back to Paris, but also to like Belgium and mm-hmm. like, other mm-hmm. chocolate, Switzerland, absolutely Germany. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, all over. Like that would. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the older I get, the less, like the more open I am becoming about the fact that I do plan the majority of my travel around like food I want to eat. Oh, sure. Nice. I'm smart. Uh, yeah. I, the last time, no, it's not the last time, but I, so I studied in Europe in uh, mm. 2002. Uh, I did a couple of study abroad programs. Um, in Greece, Oxford, and Florence. Um, and I wasn't into food then. <laughs> I mean, I liked food, but like it wasn't it wasn't an all-consuming obsession like it is now. <laughs> now it's when I would definitely plan around food and um, seek out like proper food when I when I go to places but yeah yeah I I, I learned from uh, some very dear friends um, actually one of uh, primarily my friend Oliver Kaplan who's a composer um, a brilliant uh, classical music composer and he and I also collaborate frequently on mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. choral pieces 
Um, Oliver taught me the trick that you bring your your hard shelled suitcase or your sturdy mm-hmm. suitcase and you pack a really cheap duffel bag because mm. that way you can fill the suitcase with, you know, the wine or the yeah. olive oil or the chocolate or whatever you want to bring back. And you can just throw your clothes in the duffel bag yeah. because super yeah. smart. That's so, I'm totally going to do that next time. <laughs> it's, it's what I do now. Um, yeah. But I w- would never have thought of it if it wasn't for Oliver's suggestion. Yeah. I think um, when my husband, now husband and I went to Italy for our uh, like one year dating anniversary, we brought back wine from uh, like t- we were in the Cinque Terre and there's this one wine called Chacatra that you can't get outside. Like you can't get in other parts of Italy. You can only get it um, mm. in Cinque Terre because of <laughs> like it, it's just very small production. It's a dessert wine. Mm. Um, so we brought, I don't know, three or four bottles back. But we only had we didn't have hard suitcases. We had these like backpacks and we just really like stuff them in there and you know hoped and prayed that they would make it. <laughs> did they? Were they okay? They did. They did. Nice. And we were able to like enjoy enjoy them ourselves and then also share like mm-hmm. some with with other people. Um so yeah. Awesome. Well, Sam, are you? Do you have anything else that you wanted to ask or say? No, I. I mean, I was really curious about the chocolate question. Um, I am a big proponent of video games of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were big. You know, it rots your brain. Whatever. It was to the point, you know, I was like sending them articles in high school, like, oh, it enhances pattern recognition. It increases your problem solving, uh, whatever. Uh, my big tattoos from a video game. Oh, I love um, that. So, uh, yeah, I'm always curious about what people are playing because I feel like it's a big part of my writing process too. Mm-hmm. You know, you spend... Um, your hands are busy. I'm a huge fidgeter. So that's key. Uh Um, And uh, uh, there's enough space in video games for you to sort of let your thoughts wander. And so it just always feels like a nice balance to end a creative day with a video game. You're like letting things sort of marinate and um, you're getting your aggression out a little bit, (laughs) you know, and um, solving puzzles and stuff it's just the best so i'm always curious about what people uh play and what they feel drawn to if if they're creative in any way you know totally well and i think one really interesting thing about video games too is like when they're done really well like that's the only form you could tell that story in yeah Um, like think about the game um okami which and um you play at another religious sort of erosion of belief and the restoration of belief in a world games. Um, okay. You play as the Shinto, Shinto goddess Amaterasu, but in the form oh, of a yeah. white wolf. Okay. But the way you, magic works in the game is that you draw things so you can be mid like fight with wow. some enemy. And then there's a, you know, I'm thinking back to like, uh, you know, you basically like hit some buttons that freezes 
the mm. the screen and turns it sepia and then you draw different kind of markings on that scene which will then when you unrelease the buttons will you know do things like create a whirlwind or like make Whoa. a tree sprout between wow. you and the enemy and that's like, so you cool didn't know that. yeah. i had always heard of this game and seen pictures of it but i didn't know that was like the mechanic yeah it's it's so cool it's really cool. Sam, what are you playing right now? I uh, They just released... So my tattoo is from The Last of Us Part 2. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to turn my arms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's uh, ferns and a moth. Um, and, uh, you know, the second game is very much about uh, cycles of violence and mm-hmm. um, how we break out of them or, or don't. Um, and a lot of my writing tends to be about cycles as well. Mm. Um, so I, that game really spoke to me a couple of years ago and they just released the remaster of the first game, mm. oh. so, which feels like a great excuse to just mm-hmm. play through yeah. the whole thing. Totally. <laughs> um, so I'm playing that. Um, and they, there's the hardest difficulty, um, they call grounded and it sort of takes away your HUD. So you have to keep track of how many bullets you have and mm. how much health you have. So, which feels like an extra, like bit of just really nice storytelling. Like you're yeah. really in it then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been playing that. And before that I was playing, um, the new horizon zero dawn game. Oh yeah. 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 I played, played the first one. I've not played the sequel yet. Oh, the sequel's really fun. I mean, I loved the first one, that whole storyline about uh, the world sort of being ending irrevocably mm-hmm. and everyone sort of retreating into these underground vaults um, gave me nightmares. <laughs> but it's just such a frightening idea, you know? That's uh, fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are great games, both of those. Yeah. So that's what I that's what I got going on now. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Fun stuff. Well, Megan, I mean, I'm sure we can dish about a lot of other things. Um, Forever. Forever (laughs) and ever. That's that's what this podcast is going to be now. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, when your next book comes out, please come back. We would love to have you. Uh, This was an amazing conversation. I loved meeting you and talking to you and uh good luck with kinesiophobia and yeah i can't wait to read it either i'm gonna pre-order it when we get off this <laughs> podcast for sure <laughs> my gosh thank you both so much it's been so wonderful to to meet you and to talk um you know, this is, it also just feels like, like the Goddard magic, right? Like folks who just yeah. bring in so many, like the comp folks who are like unapologetic about having like myriad interests mm-hmm. and like combining mm-hmm. them and how that informs their world and their work. It's just the best. Um, so yeah. I, and I would love to come back for my next book. It's actually in the fourth draft right now. Oh, and I, I am going good. to start beta testing it because okay. I have, it has a weird form and I have to make sure the form actually works the way I think it will before I start, um, you know, submitting uh, to publishers. But I'm excited sure. because 
if kinesiophobia is the book about my dad, then this next book, which is called Terography, so kind of a combination of tarot and cartography, mm-hmm. um, is the book about my mom. And mm-hmm. what it actually is, and I will show this to you because you can kind of see it um, or get a sense. So like the this is the manuscript as it's laid out, but the okay. idea is it's a fully functioning tarot deck it's just on each of the cards, there's one to two lines and you can read everything through sequentially. Um, but what I really hope I can pull off, which is why I want to do beta testing is that you can also like draw random cards. Like you can do readings and then the words should connect to each other to be its own poem. And this is very much sort of my answer to like, how do I tell a story about my mom that could be potentially authentic to both her experiences and mine? Mm. Wow. That's oh, really cool. I'm so excited yeah. about oh, wow. like physically holding that. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's because, because that's what it'll have to look like, right? It's, it's yeah. cards. Yeah. yeah. I actually bought a like, cheap pack. Oh no, I didn't buy it. I found them on my buy nothing group. I love my local buy nothing group, but like these index card size labels. Okay. Um, so then you can get like a, you know, import the template into Microsoft word. And so I'm literally typing out the version, the latest version onto these like cards, and then Mm -hmm. I'm going to print it and then just use this sort of text only version to test it. Uh. Hmm. Wow. That's so cool. Oh, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I, I want to manipulate it right now. <laughs> I know. I'm just like holding it in my hands is going to be so weird because I'm ah. used to it just being like, I don't know, like eight sheets of paper stapled together. Yeah. But like, but that's it, also not the thing. it also feels like very like choose your own adventure type mm-hmm. thing, you know, which, uh, which I love. Totally. <laughs> Awesome. Well, when that is is ready, then yes, you have to come back and we can talk more about your inspirations and how Mm -hmm. that how the tarography works for sure. Great. Thank you both so much. much. Thank you. It was awesome. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Association. It is produced, hosted, and edited by Sam Rebeline and Amanda Faye Laxon. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. And please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.